Good morning, ladies, and good morning to all of you listening out in podcast land. Uh, we're back again in Philippians, and this week we're going to be um, looking at Philippians 1, 27 to 30, standing firm. And uh, it's only four verses this week, but they are packed full, so we are going to start flying. So last week, Noreen taught us about Paul's purpose, and this week Paul's going to shift the focus from sharing with the Philippians his circumstances to giving his full attention to the Philippians' progress in the faith. He's going to lay out some clear instructions on how believers are to live. We'll shift from the why we get up in the morning to the how we live once we are out of bed. But first, let's pray. Hey, Father, will you please help me as I seek to teach your word this morning? Please bless my efforts. If anything is this, in this teaching is not pleasing to you, Please let it fall away. We need your help. We need your spirit to be at work in our hearts. Open the eyes of our hearts, Lord. I pray that you would help us know and understand how you desire us to live. Help us to see the worth of the gospel and to make much of you and much of your son, Jesus. Father, over the course of our time in the book of Philippians, I ask that you would work by your spirit to release us from bondages of fear and help us to live faith-fueled lives filled with joy. I pray that you would be glorified this morning by the teaching of your word. Amen. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and hear, and now hear that I still have. <coughs> Paul is exhorting the Philippian church on how to live as Christians. When we see Paul use the word only, he's saying this is all that is needed for the Christian life. Paul is commanding the church to live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. In the original Greek, the word polytheusis was used for the term of manner of life. It's from polytheusis that we get our English word for politics. So I don't speak Greek, so it's probably not pronounced well, but that's the gist. And then later in 320, Paul will explain that we are citizens, polytuma in the Greek of heaven. Paul is calling believers to live in a way that accords with our citizenship. We are to conduct ourselves as citizens of heaven. Philippi was a Roman colony. The believers of Philippi would have enjoyed the privileges of being Roman citizens. But Paul is reminding them that they are now citizens of heaven, citizens of God's kingdom, which is of even greater importance and comes with far more privileges. Their allegiance is to Christ, not to Caesar. Anyone who is in Christ has had a change of citizenship. Our homeland is in heaven. Believers are to bring our lives into conformity with our homeland of heaven. As citizens of heaven, the gospel serves as our constitution, and we are to live in accordance with the gospel bringing every aspect of our lives under the authority of the gospel of Christ. We are to conform to Christ, not to the world or its powers, not to our earthly political leaders or the culture of our time, but to the ways of Christ. We are to live in a way that is consistent with the gospel. 
When we hear the phrase, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, we might think the word worthy is pointing to our own worth, that we need to live in a way that we deserve the gospel, that we can earn the gospel through our actions. That is an error. Paul has made it very clear in his letter to the Ephesians that we are saved by grace through faith. It is not our own doing. Salvation is not a result of works. What Paul is saying here is that the gospel is worthy. We are called to live in a way that magnifies the beauty of the gospel. We are to adorn the gospel with how we live. Our lives are meant to display that the gospel is worth more than anything, that the gospel is our greatest treasure. Think of the parable of the man who, after finding treasure in a field, he, with joy, sells everything he has to buy that field, which is in Matthew thirteen forty four. The gospel is worth more than anything and everything else in the world, and we are to live in a way that demonstrates that. Jesus is our whole reason for living. If we are going to live in a way that displays the worth of the gospel, we need to take a step back and know what the gospel is. So let's take a moment to define the gospel of Christ. The gospel of Christ means the good news of Christ. The word gospel comes from the old English God spell. God meaning good and spell announcement. So let's look at a few places in scripture that showcase that good news of Christ. First from the Old Testament in Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Your God reigns. That is the best news ever. And then we can flip ahead to the New Testament in Mark 1, 14 to 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And then in Mark 10, 45, for even the son of man came not to serve, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 4, Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. From these passages, we learn that the gospel is the good news that God reigns. His kingdom has come. The gospel is a message that is preached of a plan that is in accordance with the scriptures and event. Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and the accomplishment of Christ through this event of saving us from our rebellion, from our sins. 1 Peter 3.18 defines the gospel as this, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The gospel is the good news that Jesus' righteousness has saved us from sin, hell, judgment, Satan, and destruction. Jesus saved us for God. The gospel is a message that is received and believed by faith. As I mentioned earlier, we're not saved by our works, but by faith. It is Jesus' work that saves us, and that is the gospel. Paul will express this to the Philippians later in 3, 8, and 9. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, 
not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. When we receive the gospel by faith, we turn from being opponents of God headed for destruction to citizens of heaven who receive all the benefits of the gospel. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Romans 5, 9. Just so we're super, super, super clear on what the gospel is. I'm going to share how John Piper defines the gospel using Paul's letter to the Philippians. The gospel of Christ is the good news that Christ, who is equal with God, 2.6, became a human being, 2.7, obeyed God perfectly, 2.8, died and rose again, 2.9, so that by union with him, 3.9, all who believe, 3.9, will be counted as righteous with Christ's righteousness in his obedience, 3.9 and 2.8, so be saved, 128 and 3.20, from sin, 368 and destruction 128 and 319 and belong to Christ 312 forever in the resurrection from the dead 311 and 21. Paul is calling the Philippian believers to live in a way that displays a sign of Christ's supreme truth and worth in the world. He is encouraging them to live in a way that demonstrates that they believe the gospel to be true. This call is also true for us today. What we believe influences how we live. We are to live lives that glorify God in all that we do, displaying his worth, demonstrating that we believe the gospel to be true. Paul doesn't want his circumstances to halt the Philippians' growth, their purpose, their gospel worth, or their witness. He reminds them to continue to live in this way, whether he is with them or not. We know Paul longed to return to his dear friends, but he, what he desired even more was for them to live lives that magnify the gospel. Paul's concern is for their progress in the faith. I would imagine hearing that they were pressing on despite his absence stirred up Paul's faith as well, encouraging him to press on in his own gospel work. Paul then outlines to the reader four ways of living that display the gospel is a worthy treasure. First, standing firm in one's spirit. This standing firm has a defensive tone to it. Don't yield, don't get knocked down. I've been watching my son Elliot play a lot of basketball, and when defending a player, it's really important that the defender plants their feet so that they don't move. They don't get knocked over. If they do, it becomes a foul, and the offensive player gets an advantage in play. They need to stand firm to defend their team. We need to stand firm to defend the gospel. We need to stand for the truth and not allow the culture of the times to sway how we live or what we believe. 1 Peter 3, 14 to 15 puts it this way. But even if we should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. By standing firm and defending the gospel, hearts can be won for Christ, and we are bearing fruits of righteousness as we pursue what is good and true. Second, with one mind striving side by side for the gospel, for the faith of the gospel. Striving is the offense. This is a moving forward, moving into the world with the gospel. It is the go and tell. We are called to share the gospel. This is working to contend for the gospel. This sounds to me like a call to discipleship, 
to raise up followers of Christ by the teaching and preaching of the word, evangelism, sharing our faith, how the gospel has changed our lives, and the beautiful impact it has had on how we view the world, ourselves, and our God. Third, not frightening anything by your opponents. Paul is calling believers to be fearless when facing gospel opposition. This opposition isn't like the opposition Paul describes earlier in chapter 1 within the church. This is coming from without. The opposition is from unbelievers who are against the gospel. How do we live fearlessly? To start, we need to be fearing the right thing. It begins with fearing God. When we trust him and his promises, we have nothing to fear because he is good. His plans are good and he is for us. We know how the story ends. This is a call to fear God and not man. For someone who struggles with fear and anxiety, I found this call very convicting. I know I worry way more than I should. I struggle with anxiety, so this call to be fearless is one I know I personally need to grow in. If you're like me, and I can assume in a room of this size I'm not alone, I want to give you some tools that have been helping me on my walk. First, repentance of doubt and unbelief. Prayer. These are ways I'm praying for myself to trust in the promises of God, that I would treasure the gospel above all else, for help to live for Christ, for courage and boldness to defend the gospel, for heart change that allows God to direct every choice, every relationship, and every plan that I would surrender to him as Lord over my life. Spending time in God's word, meditating on the truth helps me to know who God is and to battle fear. Years ago, I read a book by Ed Welch called When People Are Big and God Is Small. This really helped reorient reorient my thinking and battle fear of man. God is sovereign and he is good. He is in control, sitting on his throne. When our thought life is aligned with those truths, we have nothing to fear. And when it isn't, we can loop back to repentance, prayer, and dig into God's word. The beauty of the gospel is that it removes fear. Throughout Paul's letter to the Philippians, we see that we no longer need to fear. We don't need to fear loss of being in need or being brought low because God promises promises to supply all of our needs. He will grant us everything we need for hope regardless of our circumstances. The gospel overcomes fear of prison. Paul is in prison, yet he has joy. We don't even need to fear death because the gospel makes death gain. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself? Paul and Epaphroditus are examples of fearless living. Epaphroditus nearly died on his mission for the gospel. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Philippians 2, 29 to 30. In the words of the psalmist, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Psalm 118, 6. And in Jesus's words, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10, 28. Paul is calling us to live in a way that demonstrates that we fear God alone. With God on our side, we have nothing to fear. We can be fearless because God is faithful and he is at work in us. He is promised to complete the good work in us, he began. Philippians 1.6 Fourth, Paul is calling believers to live this way together. 
one spirit, one mind, side by side. These words all imply a unity amongst the body. We are to work together in partnership for the sake of the gospel. The Holy Spirit unites us into one spirit. This oneness comes from our unity with Christ. In order to have unity amongst the body, we need to have the mind of Christ. We need to follow his example of humility. It is this mindset that produces unity. Unity comes from putting others' welfare, their interests above our own. So we're going to dig into that a lot more in next week's study in Philippians 2, 1 to 8. But for now, let's remember that this is, has, that there is more to fellowship than sharing a meal together or chatting over a cup of coffee. While these things are good gifts from God, our fellowship has a deeper purpose. True fellowship is when we come together using our gifts and resources to advance the gospel. When we live for the gospel, we're unified. We, when we put on the mind of Christ and think more of our brothers than ourselves, that humility severs the root of selfishness behind all disunity. Our unity displays our love for one another. It is other-centered, not self-centered. Unity over selfishness. We don't know what Yudia and Syntyche are in disagreement about, but we know that disunity is something that can derail the advancement of the gospel. Dis- division is something we need to guard against. We need to seek to reconcile our differences though, so that we can remain on task living worthy of the gospel. That might look like examining our own hearts for sin and repenting, or it could be something that's irreconcilable and it, we need to respectfully move on like Paul and Barnabas, or it could be an area that we compromise on for the sake of the gospel. But let's be clear it will never be compromising the gospel of Christ. Paul is calling the church to remain united in the gospel. Our love for each other is how people know we are Christ's disciples. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 13, 35. And that becomes a sign. This is a sign, a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. How we live points others to who we are living for. It is a sign. Are we living for Christ or are we living for ourselves? When we live lovingly, fearlessly, standing and striving for the gospel, it displays to the watching world that the gospel is of tremendous value. The way we live will either draw unbelievers in or push them away. It will lead to their destruction or their salvation. Salvation for those who embrace the gospel by faith and destru- or destruction for those who reject, oppose the gospel through unbelief. When Christians live in a way that demonstrates that they are not frightened by the loss of earthly things, it testifies that God is real and the gospel is our treasure, our great reward, and it is of immense worth that Jesus is everything. Paul states, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Philippians 3, 18 to 19. He is explaining who and what opponents of the gospel live for. Their highest authority is their appetites, their belly. They live to satisfy their desire for physical pleasure. That is their greatest reward. It is their God. It is what they serve. This God is incapable of saving them. It's not sovereign. It's not powerful, it's weak, and it will ultimately lead them to destruction. When believers live in a way that shows the worth of the gospel, it highlights the impotence of unbelievers' false God. When we live standing firm and striving for gospel advancement, it displays that God is real. 
This causes our opponents to question and fear their destiny. How we live matters. The way the women of Maple Avenue interacted with each other, their husbands, and their children, and how oh boy, <laughs> and how they spoke about Jesus is what drew me to Christ. How they lived was a sign of their salvation, and it led to mine. So that's one response. But the other is opposition, because we remind the unbeliever that they're headed for destruction. Shortly after coming to faith, my childhood friend asked me to be her maid of honor. I remember being unsure if I should attend her bachelorette party. I consulted with a godly brother who said, Remember, Chantel, Jesus was a friend to sinners, and he dined with them. So I went, but how I lived that evening was different than my friend and her other guests. And I remember my friend being really angry that I was sober. And then I was able to take care of her when she overindulged. And she was, she was on upset. She was not happy. And that evening, it became really evident that she didn't want, did not want to marry her fiancé. So over the next couple of weeks before the wedding, I kept trying to talk to her about the things that she said that night. But she refused to discuss it. She went ahead with the wedding. And I remember just continuing to pray for wisdom on what I was supposed to do. Like, was I supposed to stand up in the church and say, no, these two shouldn't get married? I didn't. And they, they wed. Um, and a couple months after the wedding, like two months after the wedding, she decided to leave her husband and told me of her plans. At that point, I shared my view of marriage and urged her to pursue counseling and work on her marriage. And I shared that my own marriage was work. I think she was so caught up in being a bride and all the excitements and pleasures that came from that time that she lost fact of the, the fact side of the fact that she was going to be someone's wife. And a few weeks after that visit, we got together again, and she shared with me that she had met someone and was dating. I could not affirm her, her divorce, or romantic pursuits. At that time, I shared with her who Christ was to me and the importance of the covenant of marriage. And I think it was a shock to her because no one else was contradicting her thinking. And I think maybe had it been a year earlier and I hadn't come to Christ, I don't know that I would have either. But everyone else was encouraging her, including our culture, to pursue her desires, to pursue her truth, to follow her heart under the justification of do what makes you happy. That was our last visit. We had been friends for 20 years and she rejected my friendship, Christ, and the way I live in pursuit of her own. I think it was hard for her to remain friends with me because seeing me made her have to face her own life choices and she did not have to question them or feel ashamed of them. My marriage had been difficult and there were times I was tempted to leave my husband, but God used the truth of the gospel to hear my marriage. He used sisters in Christ to help me obey his call as a wife and commit to my marriage, even when it was hard. So through the lens of the gospel, I was able to see God's good plan for marriage and that my friend was pursuing a foolish path headed for destruction. The gospel has helped me to see what's right in God's eyes rather than what is right in my own. Losing a friend who had been the maid of honor of my own wedding was hard. It wasn't prison, but it was a form of suffering. So let's look at what Paul has to teach the Philippians about suffering. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. God has given believers two gifts, faith and suffering. The second suffering, we might want to root around the gift bag for the gift receipt. 
and return it, or maybe like re-gift it to someone else. Because let's be real, none of us wants to suffer. And while suffering might not end up on our Amazon wish list, Paul tells us that suffering is a gift. Let's look at how Paul unwraps this. We are given the gift of faith to believe in Christ, to believe the gospel. It is through this faith that we can live lives worthy of the gospel. We are, are also given the gift of suffering. We are called to suffer for Christ's sake. God uses hard things for good. Suffering is a gift. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Matthew 5.11 We are rewarded for our suffering. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Matthew 5.12 Our persecution is promised as is our salvation if we stand firm. And you will be hated by all for my namesake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Matthew 10, 22. Suffering confirms our salvation. Suffering produces faith. It has purpose. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so you might fall in his steps. 1 Peter 2, 20-21 Through suffering we identify with Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. Philippians 3.10 Suffering displays we belong to Christ and are citizens of heaven. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified in him. Romans 8, 17. Faith-filled suffering is a sign that God is real. God is true. God is just. God is demonstrated to be real in the lives of true believers who suffer for the sake of the gospel. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness fastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Second Thessalonians 1, 46. And we can also look at Moses' example in the hall of faith, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than in then to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, Hebrews eleven twenty five, Moses gave up life in Pharaoh's palace and all the privileges that would that would entail, facing persecution at Pharaoh's hand as an Israelite, because he had faith that God's blessings were greater than any earthly pleasure. When we suffer well, God is glorified. Suffering well is only possible by faith. We need to have faith in Christ and trust in His promises to do this. Our suffering is an offering to Christ. It is an act of worship standing for him, identifying with him, shows that we belong to him and that he is worthy. Paul has packed a lot into these four verses. So let's finish our time together with verse 30. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had. Paul is calling to mind a memory from Paul's time in Philippi. Paul is reminding the believers that while he was with them, he was in prison for standing for the gospel. Paul cast out an evil spirit from a slave girl, costing her owners the income she brought into them by fortune-telling. The owners had Paul and Silas brought up on false charges of disturbing the city and unlawful customs. 
Paul and Silas were stripped, attacked, beaten, and imprisoned. The Philippians witnessed Paul's brutal arrest and imprisonment. They saw this. And now hearing that I still have, Paul is still in jail for his faith. Yet the Philippians remain engaged. They continue to involve themselves in Paul's life. They stand by him. They are not ashamed of him or of the gospel. They support Paul while he is in prison by providing for his physical needs and sending Epaphroditus to minister him to him. Their support of Paul comes at a cost. It is a sacrifice. It is a defense of the gospel. It demonstrates their faith. Paul lived fearlessly standing firm in the gospel. Paul pursued his purpose of serving Christ despite the opposition of the gospel he faced. He was imprisoned, but that did not stop the advancement of the gospel. Paul's suffering had purpose. His imprisonment in Philippi led to the jailer and his household receiving salvation. Paul used every opportunity in his life for the advancement of the gospel, including his wrongful arrest and imprisonment in Philippi. When the authorities realized their mistake in arresting Paul, who was a Roman citizen, they urged him to leave Philippi quickly and quietly. They didn't want Paul bringing any more attention to himself, their mistake, or the gospel. Instead, Paul refused, insisting on a public apology. This had nothing to do with Paul's pride or protecting his reputation, but everything to do with protecting, preserving, and defending the gospel. He would not slink off into the night. Instead, he stands up so that his gospel witness is not tarnished by his arrest. His concern was for the gospel and its advancement in Philippi. Likewise, Paul's current imprisonment has allowed for the gospel to be made known throughout the whole imperial guard. Paul's suffering gave his brothers confidence in God and helped them to fearlessly share the gospel. The way Paul lived impacted them. His fearless trust in the gospel and what God was doing was a sign of Paul's salvation. God is real. Salvation is coming. The way we suffer matters. In the West, it's very uncommon to be beaten and arrested for our faith. It's important that we remember that this isn't the case around the globe. Believers around the world are being persecuted for following Christ, and the numbers are staggering. 365 million believers throughout over 70 countries. We can follow the Philippian church example and support the persecuted church's defense of the gospel with our prayers, our encouragement, and financial support. While we are not likely ourselves to be imprisoned for our faith, we will face hostility because of our belief in the gospel. We might be passed over for promotions, rejected by friends or family, mocked and ridiculed, left out, but how we respond matters. In this moment, in these moments, we might feel cast out or in otherness, but that's because we've been set apart. We have been set apart for God. We're not alone. We have Christ. We have the help of his Holy Spirit, and we have each other, the church. Suffering is an opportunity to draw closer to Christ and to bring him glory. Faith through suffering produces a fearlessness, which is a sign to the watching world of salvation from God. <laughs> Let's not waste our suffering focusing on our circumstances, but instead, like Paul, keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, trust in the promises of God, and use every opportunity we have to share the hope of the gospel. Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel without fear. I'm just going to close our time now in prayer. Heavenly Father, help us to follow Jesus' example of humility. 
I pray that each woman listening to this message today would strive to live a life worthy of the gospel. Help us, Father, to stand firm in the gospel. Please give us a unity of spirit. Help us to strive side by side for the sake of the gospel. Help us to love one another. May our love for each other be a sign to the watching world. Please give us a boldness and a courage. Deliver us from the temptation to fear men. Help us to rightly fear you. Jesus, you are our joy. Would you help us to persevere in laboring for the gospel with joy? We ask you to draw near to those who are suffering for the sake of Christ. Help them to stand firm, to not lose hope, to cling to their salvation, to trust in your good promises. Grant them joy in their suffering. May you receive the glory. Amen. Mm-hmm.